This morning we're in John 17. It'll be our last time in the Gospel of John for a while. We'll take a break and then we will um, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, 9 over the course of the next few weeks as we are in this Advent season and then we'll be into 2019. Uh, but this morning we are in John 17 one more time. George Whitfield is known for the quote, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Whitfield was pivotal in the history of the American Evangelical Church. He came to the colonies from England in the mid-1700s, traveled up and down the East Coast, preaching time after time to enormous crowds. One of those was in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin was in the crowd and wrote that there were more than 10,000 who were able to hear Whitfield speak. Whitfield lived as, as that phrase, that sentence described, someone who spent his life in the proclamation of the gospel, serving the Lord, knowing that at some point his time would come, his work would be done, and the Lord would call him home, and he did that when Whitfield was 55. But like Whitfield, we, we don't know when our time will be, when we will end on this side of eternity and stand in the presence of our Savior. We don't know how much time we have left to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light, as Peter wrote. We are called to serve, and we are preserved in that serving. We are, as Whitfield said, immortal until our work is done, because Jesus Christ has prayed for us to be preserved. That promise of preservation is part of this prayer in John 17, where Jesus is concluding his time with his disciples. He is praying for them on the night before his crucifixion. He has spent, as we have seen that evening, preparing his disciples for what is coming, his crucifixion the next day, his resurrection, his ascension when he goes away from them in a, a physical presence sort of sense. He will not be with them, walking with them and talking with them in that way. And so he has been preparing them for what is about to happen and he concludes this discourse with this prayer. We looked at the beginning and the end of the prayer last week in order to get the overarching purpose of the prayer. What is it that Jesus is, what is at the end of what he is praying for? And it is that his followers, not just the 11 before him, but that all of his followers would one day be in heaven and behold Jesus in the glory of God. He is desiring that one day you and I will see him in the fullness of his glory. Before the universe was created, Jesus Christ was in that radiant brilliance, in that glory of God that he shared with the Father and with the Spirit, that, that glory, that perfection and holiness that was radiating from him in, that, in heaven was something that is veiled during his earthly ministry. It's something that is only glimpsed as we read last week by the, the three disciples who went up on the mountain with him when Jesus was transfigured before them. After Jesus died, after he rose and ascended to heaven, he now returns to that fullness of glory. It is no longer veiled. And so in heaven today, Jesus is seen in the fullness of his divine glory. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has prayed for you that one day you will see him in that fullness of glory, beholding that glory. This prayer that we look at, the balance of it this morning, is really sort of, if you will, the means to that end. If the end is seeing Jesus in heaven in his glory, 
what happens here is he is praying for those 11 men standing before him who are now going to be charged, commissioned to go out into the world and to proclaim his glory, to spread his gospel, and to lead people to faith in Christ, to grow that body of believers who will see Jesus in his glory. And so in chapters 14 through 17, he has been promising his disciples as a way of preparing them for this work, promising that his presence would be with them through his spirit, that his power would be with them, um, that they would have um, fruit that would be born as a result of his work in them, that because of their ministry, there will be people who will come to faith in Christ. He's also, we've read it already, he promised that there would be severe persecution for followers of Jesus Christ to the point that some would even be killed for their faith. Having made those promises, Jesus now stands in the presence of his disciples and speaks to his Father, and he does so out loud so they can hear this, so that they can hear Jesus praying for them, what he desires happen to them, through them, in them, if you will, as they go forward and begin the the growing of the body of Christ. And so Jesus prays that the Father would preserve them They are going to be in the midst of a hostile world, one that crucified Jesus and will continue to be hateful toward them. Jesus now prays that God would preserve them in truth, in unity, in holiness, and in mission. That is our outline for this morning. Jesus praying to his Father to preserve his disciples. You and I, he will will go on and make it clear that he's not just talking about those 11, but all of us. In truth, in unity, in holiness, and in mission. This prayer applies to us. It is calling us to remain grounded in truth, calling on us to grow in unity and holiness so that we are equipped for the work of ministry, for the mission of proclaiming his gospel. I'm going to pick up in verse 6, read all the way down through verse 23, and then we'll come back and, and hit different parts of it as we come back through. But Jesus now in John 17, verse 6 says to his father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them even as you loved me. The Gospel of John, one of the themes that we see often in the Gospel of John is teaching about God's sovereignty in salvation. The fact that he works as king and he has the right to rule is exercised in his saving of people. Uh, John chapter 6 is almost a theology of this. A number of verses from John chapter 6, and I'll show you this connection to 17 here in a moment. But John 6, 29, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So God's work, causing belief in people. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6, 44, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Just a few of the verses that emphasize the necessity that it is God who must give life to those who are spiritually dead. It is God who must give sight to those who are blind. It is God who by necessity must save. Gospel of John, though, is also clear about man's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ, that we must turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are not wholly passive in this, in that John 6.35 says, Whoever comes to me, comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Many statements in the Gospel of John that speak to the call to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Here in John 17, that union of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is so clear. We are described as a people who belong to the Father that the Father gives to the Son. There is God's sovereignty. There is the King designating for himself a people that he now gives to his Son. But then Jesus says of those people, they have kept your word. Their response to the, the sovereign work of God is to now keep that word, to guard it. Verse 8 says, The words that you gave me, they have received and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. One of God's works in saving sinners is to cause us to believe that which the world deems as nonsense or fiction. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are blind to this truth, and, and, and it, it, it looks like that, which is just something that belongs to some religion or some set of spiritual beliefs. It is God, by his grace, that enables us to see the truth of the gospel for what it is, the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is God's work that causes us to embrace and live in that truth, and it is also God's grace that keeps us rooted and grounded in that truth, and that is what Jesus is praying for here. That the, the truth that saves these followers now sustains them. That they will continue to walk in it. That the Father will keep them grounded in the truth of his word. Look again at verse 8 where he says, For I have given them, Jesus, now the words that you gave me, they have received them 
have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There's almost a sequence to that in the sense of receiving, knowing, believing. That receiving is taking something to yourself. It is seeing it and, and, and taking it in. It is knowing it now, God giving this knowledge so that you now see this as his truth, and then believing it, putting your faith, resting in it. It's almost a progression, if you will. As a result of that salvation, God's work, we are now kept in his Truth. Verse 6 says, they have kept your word. It's not the ordinary past tense that means at one moment in time they took it and kept it and held on to it. But what it means is it's a past tense that has ongoing results. And so it has the idea of a verb that means the gospel was internalized and is now continuing to be obeyed. They have taken it to themselves and they are in the process of feeling the effect of having kept it because it continues to hold them. They are grounded in that. That, that word kept in verse 6 also shows up in one form or another in verse 11, verse 12, verse 15. It is a theme of this prayer where Jesus is saying to the Father, keep them. The word, the simple word in the Greek was, the, was used most commonly for what a prison guard did. He had somebody that was in his custody, and it was his charge to keep them there, to keep them under his watch, to, to make sure that they didn't go anywhere else. We are not prisoners, but what Jesus is praying for here is that God would keep us in that way, that we would belong to him, that, that there would be no losing of anyone, that we would be his, preserved by him. In fact, in this passage, when he does talk about the one who is lost, he talks of the son of destruction down in verse 12, I have guarded them, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. E even there, his point is not that I keep, and, and we just hope we don't lose one along the way, and we just kind of lost this one. He adds that the scripture may be fulfilled, referring back to Psalm 41.9, speaking of the one who betrayed Jesus, to say even that was within God's plan, that this was not a, an accident in God's plan, the fact that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus Christ, and that now these 11 stand before him. The fact that as believers we keep his word, that we stay in allegiance to his word, is a kind work of the Father. And it is what Jesus is praying for, that we would continue to stand on this. A strong proof of God's preservation of you as a believer is your ongoing allegiance to the word of God. Think about this. We live in a world, a culture, that shows disdain toward the idea of absolute truth. The notion that there is one said of truth about God, and, and that that is the truth that must be obeyed, is not endorsed by our culture. The Christian doctrine that there is one standard of truth about God, one revelation of who God is, one way to God, one measure of right and wrong and good and evil, is mocked by our culture. How can you say that? How can you not be more inclusive, is the cry of the culture. In fact, we've moved from where it's the response is not just that truth is relative, but now the, the catchword is that truth is personal. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And, and so I can look at life in a totally different way from you, and it's okay because we each have our own truth. And so we can talk about things in the Word of God, and have points of view that are diametrically opposed to each other or diametrically opposed to the word of God, and a person can still say, well, that's my truth. 
And, and, and that's, that's supposed to sort of end the argument at, at that point. One of the, uh, the so-called life coaches explains it this way. See if you can follow this. I had to read it a couple times and still not sure I've got it, but this is about your truth. Living your truth must come to represent that which is true for you alone and unhindered by outside influences. Let me just stop there because I, I, think, I think it's fair to translate that unhindered by facts. I mean, I think that's really the argument. If an outside influence says, oh, no, 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 this is true, the light is red, my truth says, no, the light is green, and so I'm unhindered by those outside influence. I think that's the point you could take that to, and I'm, I'm not seeking to mock here. I just think this is the culture's view on this. Your truth is the essence of your spiritual nature. That is, once the mental facade has been transformed, the truth gives way to the light of your being. The truth, he says, is represented by the emergence of the authentic self, which is the soul's true essence. I, I'm not sure, I, and it, it helps me when I read something like that, when we talk, when people who are not believers look at the scriptures and go, this just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it helps me maybe a little bit understand when I read that and go, this makes no sense to me. The, the argument that one individual gave writing as well on this topic says, it is not necessary to program oneself with the truth. It is only necessary to remove that which is false. That is entirely illogical because you can't identify what is false if there is not truth that counters that. You can't say that I'm going to remove falsehood if you don't acknowledge that there's also truth, that something is true and something is not, unless I am my own personal arbiter of truth. And that is the, that is the, the, the prevalent cultural view when it speaks of my truth. I decide what, what values I will adopt. I decide what morals are appropriate. Even though I have been born into a universe that is governed by a delicate balance of laws that allow me to exist here on earth, I still determine what's true for me alone, and I am not subject to any outside influences. This is nothing more than what we see throughout the Old Testament described under the term idolatry. There is a creator God, but I choose to worship me in this case and what I believe and what I desire. I am my own God. I define what is true. In other words, translate it, that is, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, particularly some ancient book written by one who you claim is my creator, because if he is, then I, I evidently must owe him something if I owe my existence to him. I, I, so I don't say all that so that we somehow feel superior and criticize people who hold these points of views. I say that to say that the fact that you and I believe in the truth of this word and are willing to stand in this culture and believe God's truth and hold to it is nothing short of a gracious work of God. We are simmering in this same culture that is telling us you can't be so narrow-minded, you can't be so intolerant, you can't think this way about this behavior anymore. That's old, and the fact that you continue to believe that this is God's truth and you are kept in it and you abide in God's word day after day and receive it as truth and submit to it and obey it is what Jesus prayed for when he stood before his disciples knowing full well that it wasn't going to be very long, and the Romans were going to say, wait a minute, you're preaching to us that you have the only way when we know there's all of these Greek gods around? How dare you? 
Jesus prayed that they would be kept in truth in the midst of a world of unbelief that we live in, that has continued down that road. The, the world around us, as the Bible is a collection of outdated myths, that, that the values that it holds to and morals that it speaks of are thousands of years old and completely irrelevant today. If you continue to believe this is true and abide by it, receive it, know it, and believe it, then praise God. Jesus prayed for that. He prayed to his Father that he would keep you there. Look again at verse 14 when he says, I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, I've given them your word, and what has the world done? The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Why does the world hate those who follow Jesus Christ? Because, A, we follow Jesus Christ and, and we belong to him, but it starts with what sets us apart is the reception of the word. I have given them your word. And because they, they believe what it says about me, the world hates you in return. So on each of these, there's four of these. This is the one we'll spend the longest on. We'll go a little shorter on the rest. But in terms of applying this, Here's my encouragement to you. This is Jesus praying, so this is, this is helping us. Just like we said last week, this is helping us to know how to pray. And so here's your application on this. Pray like Jesus. Pray that he would keep you rooted in his word. Pray that amidst all of the, the, the push and persuasion and temptation and stuff that's out there that calls you to say, here's a better way. Pray that God would hold you fast in his word, that you would run to his truth first, that you would seek his wisdom from scripture. Pray that as a church, we would always stand fast on this, that we would not be persuaded away from the truth of his word. And that if there's something that, that sounds like it's not the truth of his word, that we would hold one another accountable and say, let's check that a minute. Let, let's pause and look at God's word. Pray that as parents, you would pass down to your children the truth of God's word, that you would teach them in it and ground them because that's what Jesus is desiring for his father, is this keeping now in the truth. So he prays that. He secondly prays that his father would preserve his followers in unity. Unity is all throughout this. If you look in the middle of verse 11, when he's praying and says, Holy Father, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be what? One, right? Yep, even as we are one. One of the, the key points of emphasis all throughout this, this discourse, all throughout what Jesus has been saying on this night before his crucifixion is unity. He said it again and again that you as disciples, you are going you to love one another in such a unique way, it will demonstrate who I am. Your oneness will be a display of the Father and the Son's oneness, and that's what will make it so unique. Look down at verse 20 and watch for how many times he says this, make them one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, all of us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become, here it is again, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you loved me. If repetition is to make a point, is to underline it and put an exclamation point, Jesus is being abundantly clear here. Father, I am praying that you would not just preserve them, but preserve them in unity with one another, that there would be a unique oneness amongst them. He says it over and over in that passage. In in John's gospel, Jesus Often we see him speaking of, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He repeatedly, again, we've talked about this before, the point that that the crowd turns against Jesus is their, their supposed charge of blasphemy because he is claiming oneness with God the Father. That's what's disturbing them because he's saying it all throughout the Gospel of John. And his point is, we are one. Father and Son have distinct personalities, but both are fully God. One is in the other, as he describes here, and he's now pleading with the Father, preserve them not as just individual believers, preserve them not as solo believers who are just out there, preserve them in unity with each other, preserve them as as people who are in me and who are joined with one another in unity. There is something about unity and cooperation and peace among human beings that our world craves. Our world would love to see a laying down of arms and stopping conflict and and peace and and everyone getting together and, and having these sort of moments together. That's what we have in Christ. There's something remarkable about men and women and people of different ethnic groups and upbringings and social statuses and jobs and and, and all of the different things that we bring together. There is something unique about people bringing all of those differences and now living in harmony, not just for the sake of a cause, but living as brothers and sisters together, sacrificing for one another and loving one another deeply. Culture wants that kind of harmony, but they can't even begin to scratch the surface of it because the kind of harmony that Jesus is speaking about here is a kind that will lead to honest confession of sin when I have wronged you. I am willing to come to you and humble myself and tell you that I have I failed. I am repenting and I'm not ashamed to repent in front of brothers and sisters because they're sinners too and they repent too and it's okay. We repent before each other. We forgive one another. We don't just keep up a, a settlement of scores against them, but we, we forgive. We sacrificially serve one another because of the uniqueness of what we have in the body of Christ. And, and his point, and we'll see it on the, the, mainly on the last point about keeping us in mission, is, is that this should be striking to unbelievers. This should just be something that to the unbelieving world is so, that they can't replicate this kind of unity. They can join organizations and causes together, but they can't get it to this depth where it's like brothers and sisters who have been drawn together into a family. It is the longing of Jesus that the world sees this oneness, and this oneness is modeled for us. It all grows out of the oneness between the Father and the Son. That's what he's saying all throughout this passage. He's used this father-son language, this, this intimacy and relationship, this closeness all throughout. We are joined not only to Jesus, not only to the Father, to one another as a result of that. Because we have been brought in by God and adopted by him through Christ, we now are family with each other, and we are to bear that resemblance. Even if we look completely different, we are to, in a way, bear resemblance so that people see we are all part of the same family. 
because of who we belong to. That, that's why Christian unity is not a group of people deciding to tolerate each other and rally around a cause. You've been in organizations or in workplaces or on sports teams, whatever it might be, where you've tolerated other people. Yes, we're all a team, but I could really do without <clears throat> those folks over there or that individual person or that one who aggravates me. But for the sake of the cause, we're going to try to do our best and just get along. That is not what he's describing here. He's saying you are like family, right? Family's the one where we all do have to get along. We all do love each other. Well, this is a oneness now in Christ that is called to be sacrificial and deep reflection of the family that we've been born into. Application on this, we should be praying for unity, praying that God would, as Jesus prayed, continue to preserve us in unity. Not, not, not just in here on Sunday morning, but clearly what he's emphasizing is a oneness that is visible to the world. There is something about how we speak about our Christian family, about how we relate to other believers, how we serve them, how we sacrifice for them, that the world looks and says, that is unusual. That is a, a very interesting kind of love that they have for one another that seems to be without concern for what one gets back in return. We should pray for that. We should pray that as a church body, we not only demonstrate unity when we come together, but we demonstrate unity all throughout the week. That, that we are a body that is, that is one that joins with other bodies that are believing in Jesus Christ, that are holding to the truth of Jesus Christ. We should be encouraging them, standing with them. People should see that. We should be praying for that. Third thing is Jesus prays for his followers to be preserved in holiness. This is the, the logical consequence of that last point. He mentions this all throughout this passage. We have been adopted into a family that is headed by, verse 11 says again the term, holy father. Holiness speaks of separateness, distinctness, separation from sin, one who is apart from sin. And he's saying now that we as a family, that is our father. He is holy, and we should reflect his name. That's one of the themes that comes through in this, is we bear his name. This is that point now where our lives intersect with the world around us, and it is the fact that the world hates us, that Jesus is aware of, that he then prays. Look back at verse 15. Let's pick up again in 15. I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. According to Jesus, a defining quality of the world is its hatred of his followers. But you and I don't get to flee it. We don't get to just sort of run from that hatred. Instead, Jesus specifically prayed, Father, Keep them in the world. Put them in the marketplace. Put them in the workplace with unbelievers. Put them in a neighborhood with unbelievers. Keep them in the world because there's a greater purpose in all of this. Keep them in the world, but protect them. Guard them. Protect them from evil, he says, from the evil one. In other words, guard them in holiness. Sanctify them. Set them apart so that they live differently 
so that even though they are surrounded by the world and even though their coworkers will cheat or lie or talk about that, even though their neighbors will carry on in adultery or something else, you make them different so that while they're in the world, they're not of the world. There's something different about them. The unbelieving world is under the the influence of the evil one, as he describes here, the delusion created by Satan who turns values upside down and distorts truth and wants desperately to drag Christians into sin so that we would look just like the rest of the world. So we would give license to the world to sort of rationalize away the gospel of Jesus Christ because if Christians can be seen as acting bitter and dishonest and immoral, if Christians take advantage of those who are weaker, if Christians spend all of their time living for self and for selfish desires, if Christians aren't willing to sacrifice for others, well, then that just gives the world license to say, well, so what do I need the gospel for? What what makes you any different than I? Jesus prays that the Father would use his truth to continually set us apart that we would live differently, that they would see something different about us so that we could be in the world but not of the world. Jesus, as he says here, has not ever been of this world. All of us come from being in the world and being rescued out of it in the sense of allegiance, now belonging to Jesus Christ. We're not of the world in the sense that we're no longer under the sway of the devil. We are now free to obey our Savior. And there should be a kind of separateness about our lives. This should not be a distant condescension of the world. He's not calling us to to try to do what the the monks tried to do, which is let's just go live out there. We will have nothing to do with the dirtiness of the world, and we will live and be cloistered away, and and we'll never get dirty from the world. Well, we all know that our minds are the, the playground for sin, and so even being cloistered away doesn't stop that, but it also makes you completely ineffective in terms of what he's going to talk about here in terms of ministry. He says he wants us to be set apart in such a way that God's word is lived through us, that what sets us apart is God's word and his spirit at work in us, growing us, changing us, helping us to act differently and decide differently. The world should see that we don't participate in its sinful ways. We don't laugh along with all of its filth. We don't go along with that, but they they should not just see the do nots. They should also see the better way that we are walking in accordance with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have joy and love and an ability to sacrifice and a hope that surpasses what the world has. We have something through his truth that sets us apart. We shouldn't be wallowing in the culture's ills, all the things that characterize our culture, enslavement to sexual sin, obsession with material gain, the endless quest to make it all about me. We should be being set apart And people should be able to see that holiness, getting a glimpse of the glory of God in us that changes us. We need to pray for this. Jesus prayed that his followers would be kept in the world, but not of the world. I I think it's fair to say, I'll speak for myself, but I, I think you all agree, there is not a day goes by that there's not temptation for sin, right? That there's something that calls you to to anger, to lust, to dishonesty, to whatever it is, impatience. There should not be a day that goes by as well that we are not crying out and saying, God, sanctify me, set me apart today. Just as Jesus prayed, keep me in, in, in holiness, desiring your truth, desiring purity, desiring to follow after your word. Keep our church loving holiness, celebrating holiness, believing that it's important 
forgiving and gracious and knowing that we stumble and we fail, but, but striving and praying that God would keep us in holiness. The last one is keeping in mission. In verses 20 through 23 that we read before, one of the points that he makes there is that all of this is so that they will see it. So he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, so here go these 11 forward, and people will respond to their word. And he says then in the end of verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, again, I and you, you and me, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's praying that we would be preserved in mission. Father, keep those you've given me in the world. Keep them grounded in the truth. Cause them to be uniquely in bond, in unity with one another. Guard them from the evil one and keep them walking in holiness so that, he says, others will see me. Others will see and believe the gospel. When he says that they will believe that you sent me, that is the essence of the gospel, that the Father sent the Son to be the Lamb, to be the perfect sacrifice. And I am praying that you would keep them so that you would keep them in mission and we would be glorified by virtue of the gospel going forward. There would be no need for us to remain here in the world unless God has a greater purpose and that's it. If you look through these last few verses, his emphasis here. Father, you gave me glory, and I now give it to them. Father, you have loved me, and I have loved them. Father, I am in you. You are in me. Now they are in us. Now we are joined together. All these things that he is saying about what we have and what we are giving to them is then for the purpose of people seeing him so that they would see Jesus Christ through our lives because now the world will see those truths lived out. And all of that is to the great end of this prayer. The purpose of this prayer is, Father, that people that you have given me, I long for the day when that chorus of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, that, that when that chorus of people come and they behold my glory, that they will see me in my glory. All of this is to that end because it is vir through the virtue of our testimony our living out, holiness, unity, him at work in us, the Father keeping us in truth and setting us apart, that he says, they will see this. And God will use this to bring them to faith, to bring them to the gospel. Jesus prayed these things to the end that there will be more worshipers one day who will stand in heaven and behold his glory. Whitfield was right. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. And we are because Jesus is praying for us. Because Jesus is praying that for as long as he has us here, that he would hold us fast in truth, that surrounded by a world that disobeys Jesus, that disobeys the word and rejects the gospel, that he is praying, Father, preserve them, hold them fast in truth. Surrounded by a world that fractures on every little point of division it can, Jesus is praying for us, Father, pull them together in a unity that is unlike anything the world has seen, in a world that wallows in sin and flaunts it and encourages us to follow along. Jesus is praying for us and saying, Father, keep them in holiness, set them apart, make them love that which is pure and right. 
all so that he can pray, Father, help the world see that now. Let the world see me. Let the world see the glory of the gospel of Christ through this loving, holy people who are grounded in your word so that there will ultimately be more people standing in glory in heaven, worshiping the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. Thank you that you intercede before the throne. We see it not just here, but we see it in Revelation, that you are interceding for us, that, that in a way that we can barely begin to fathom, you are continuing to pray for your people. We are thankful for that. When Satan accuses, when he seeks to cause believers to be discouraged and to give up, we have a Savior who is pleading for us who is reminding us again from the truth of the gospel that we have been redeemed by his shed blood. Lord, help us to be a people who love holiness, who love purity. Cause us to be a people who are so joined together and so kept together that we will encourage one another when the struggles with sin become great, the temptation seems overwhelming. May you use the body of Christ to be a source of, of wisdom, and calling and urging one another to follow after the Savior. Cause us to grow in love with one another. Lord, we pray that not just for our church, but for other evangelicals in the area who are trusting in Christ, that, that there would be a profound witness of believers who love and serve one another, who are willing to sacrifice. May those who visit here see in this church a, a body that lives out this role of brothers and sisters in Christ who carry on the identity of belonging to the Father. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that it is unchanging. Cause us to keep an allegiance to it, regardless of what the world may say. Cause us to believe it and receive it and obey it by your spirit at work in us. Father, if there are any here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, would today be the day we pray that you would open their eyes to see the Savior who gave himself as a ransom for sinners on the cross, to pay what we could not, to pay for our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace to pray for us. Father, thank you for preserving us and keeping us. Thank you that we are firmly in your grasp. We look forward to the day when we stand before you and worship you in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.